And so, you know, the amount of ability for the soil to store carbon, to grow more plants, and then that holds better uh, moisture, and then so you have better temperature regulation, less carbon in the air, more food production. The more life in the soil, the more life above the soil. And that's just not really factored into anything economically, you know? And so we're kind of just heading towards becoming a planet like Mars with desertification everywhere because we're not taking care of the soil. The soil has 50% of the nutrients it used to have, so our food has half the nutrients it used to have. So we're getting more sick. It's a vicious cycle. But again, the large reason is people don't know how simple it is. You just put food in a different bin. Like, it's that easy. Just put food in a different bin and then put that bin on the curb. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Connor Miller, CEO of Black Earth Composting. He joins us from Gloucester, Massachusetts. Welcome, Connor. Thank you. As I was researching, I came across some shocking statistics about food waste. The EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, said that in 2018, 24% of our landfills were composed of food waste. That is even before the pandemic, even before the lockdowns, where all of us saw the disruption in supply chain, which caused immense amount of food waste. How is that even possible when we have hungry people and when we have other shortfalls in our society? How is this happening? You know, it didn't used to be the case. People used to, my hometown here in Gloucester, a lot of the older houses have these, they call them swill buckets that are in the ground where the pig farmer used to come over, step on a pedal and grab the food out of it two or three times a week. And all the food used to go to the pigs here. Then the pig farm turned into a nice like suburban kind of neighborhood. The pig farmer wasn't picking up the food for free. People just threw it in the trash. And that was probably 40, 50 years ago. The pig farmers didn't really come back and it became really convenient to just throw it all out. And the landfill fees were cheap, but it's starting to change now, especially along the coast. I don't know about the middle of the country as much, but yeah, the uh, state of Massachusetts has implemented, and a couple more states in New England, implemented a one ton per week rule. So if anybody is producing more than one ton a week of food waste, that they have to separate it for either reuse for humans, like if it's in packaging and it stays fresh, that's the highest level. Then animal feed is the second highest. So fresh veggies and breads and all that goes to usually pigs. And then anaerobic digestion and composting pretty much get the rest. So the one ton per rule gets all the supermarkets, colleges, the big stuff. And then this fall in Massachusetts, they're lowering that to half a ton per week. So that gets everybody that is around one ton, but says that they're under one ton to do it. Mm -hmm. Because that's actually like the largest portion of where the food waste comes from is the large restaurants and stuff like that, schools that are right around a ton a week, but kind of dodge under that level. So Massachusetts and some New England states are moving pretty well on that. But then a large amount come from the households. But 
I don't think what we pick up from households is really capable of going to animals or shelters and stuff. It's like banana peels and meat bones and coffee grinds. So when you think about household waste, listener of ours, Camille Gervasio, she posed this question to me. She says, when you think about household waste, there are four ways that you can use it. You make a vegetable stock or, you know, beef stock, soup stock, basically, or you put it in your trash, which we realize is not eco-friendly, or you can even put it in your garbage disposal because there are some municipalities who can uh, use it for biogas. And of course, the fourth option is composting. So what about just spreading it in your garbage disposal? That's got a lot of other hidden costs in it. Like you got to buy the garbage disposal, they break, they use electricity, they use water. And then when you get in that habit too, a lot of the places don't want all of that food waste going through their systems. It's a problem and they encourage residents not to do that. You also end up putting a lot more fats and oils in there that clogs up the pipes. Mm -hmm. But it's better than throwing it out in the trash. I think most people don't realize how much food they put in the trash. And the food waste is really heavy. When you're good at recycling and composting, all you have is like pretty much light plastic film that goes in the trash that you can't recycle. And uh, and we have a family of four and we put out a bag of trash like every two, three weeks. It's not that hard when you're good at composting and recycling. But the other thing is, you know, one study I saw on why do people not do our compost program? And the first thing the biggest reason is people think it's too complicated. There's just kind of a lack of knowledge about what composting is. And for us, it's really simple. It's not like backyard composting where there's a lot of rules on what you can put in. For us, we take basically all food. How is your composting different than backyard composting? Our piles are much bigger. So they're generally, I'd say 15 feet tall, 15 feet wide, 100 feet long. And so that generates a lot more heat. So it's like 160 degrees. So if you put anything in your oven for 160 degrees for a few weeks, it's not gonna be much left, but your backyard pile doesn't get very warm and it doesn't have nearly the volume to insulate what is warm. Mm -hmm. So because it doesn't get warm, you're also gonna get rats and stuff like that. So we can take meat, the rats won't go touch something 160 degrees in the middle of a pile. How does it get so hot? The bacteria inside, there's different levels of bacteria that kick in at different temperatures. So you have the right amount of oxygen flow and moisture, and that creates the heat with the bacteria. Is this some bacteria that you put in or is it natural? It's natural and it kind of seeds each other. So you can get it going faster if you take some of the other compost and mix it in. Like a sourdough starter or a yogurt culture. Yeah, it's kind of like keeping a fire going. And so you're always kind of adding things to the mix, rearrange, shuffling it around. And if you add something hot in there already, it kicks it off faster. How do you turn the compost? You said it, it, these are 100 foot wide pits. Yeah, you have these big loaders with like five yard buckets. So they're probably like eight feet wide and three or four feet tall buckets that scoop up the compost and then turn it into another pile. So what are the items that you take in your composting? It's easiest to just say anything that was alive, basically, because that all breaks down. But we can't do certain things like dog poop, cat poop, human, you know, just safety reasons. It would all break down, but it reaches like biosolid regulations and stuff. 
But yeah, we can take paper napkins and stuff like bones and shells from oysters and clams and stuff don't break down very well, but they kind of chip up and it's good calcium. Right. And so it'll get screened out at the end if it doesn't break up small enough to fall through the screen. So do you use other manure, like cow or horse? Yeah, we have a lot of horse farms near us. So they come in with, it's mostly wood shavings and some horse manure. Uh, the wood shavings is the bedding that the horses pee on and they get scooped up. Uh, but that's a great source of carbon for us. We also use leaves um, and ground up wood chips and stuff like that. So that's the, the carbon side that mixes with the nitrogen uh, food waste. So it's cool because the food waste is worthless on its own. The carbon is worthless on its own. Exactly. And you add the two together and it's like alchemy that creates black gold. One of the companies actually took dryer lint. And I was kind of surprised because you put polyester clothes and you put cotton clothes. So it's not completely biodegradable. I was kind of surprised. I think that was a thing that was originally done in places like Seattle. And a lot of people just like us just copied what was happening. And then we started realizing, yeah, there's plastic in the dryer lint, so we can't take that. Yeah, if it was just cotton and wool, that'd be fine. How many tons of food waste do you pick up every week? About 200 tons, but we don't process that all ourselves. We use like a dozen other sites. So describe the site to me, because my experience is just this backyard, you know, like a roller composter. The general compost site, I would say maybe two to three acres, and you dump next to a pile, and there's usually a wood chip or carbon pile next to that that gets mixed in and added to the first round pile. And then it, things usually shuffle in one direction towards a screening machine, which gets all the smaller particles for the finished product mm -hmm. and gets the large particles out like trash. So like if a Coke bottle makes it through, that's going to come out through the screen and get separated out so it's not in the finished compost. So it just works its way along time-wise like that. What about contamination? Coke bottle is big, obvious, but what if it's a piece of plastic or a toothbrush or whatever else? You know, How do you cope with that? So we know how much contamination we have because we fill up like a dumpster and we weight wise it ends up we have about one percent contamination and it's like almost all plastic the good thing since we are only a compost company and we bring it to our own sites we care a lot about picking it up if it was a trash company dumping everybody else's site they probably care a little less about there being contamination in there so a lot of our Drivers are careful, and if it's contaminated, we just don't pick it up. We tell the restaurant or whatever, you got to throw this out or clean it up because we can't take this. Mm -hmm. You know, stuff does get in there, and most problematic materials would be styrofoam and glass because they can fragment, but we hardly ever get any of that. So the plastics, we can suck off with a leaf vacuum at the end of the process. And you said that you hardly get any of that. Is that because of... Education, your customer base is fairly conscious, or maybe penalties. Like early on, I remember uh, municipalities used to have penalties if you cross-contaminated your recycling when they used to do, you know, sorted recycling. The biggest penalty is just saying we can't take this, and then 
you know, whoever put the trash in the bin and has to shovel it all out. Either that or we charge them an extra, you know, 20 bucks or something to pick it out ourselves. That's enough deterrence for people to comply. And if it keeps happening, then it's just not going to work. We'll find somebody else. So describe what you do for the residential customers and what you do for the commercial pickups like colleges, schools, hotels, restaurants. So we have two different sites. We have a residential bin and a commercial bin. And there's two different residential bins, a four-gallon and a 13-gallon. The four-gallon is good for like apartment dwellers that can't keep a bin outside or in their garage. Mm -hmm. And we do weekly and biweekly pickups for the residents. The commercials are 32, 48, or 64 gallon. We pick up anywhere from once a week to seven days a week, depending on what their needs are. Places like Boston, they need it much more because there's no space, but it's generally cheaper to have it less per week with more totes per stop. We line the commercial bins with a compostable bag, and that keeps the bins clean. Residents do it on their own, but we do require liners of some sort. So you don't swap out the buckets? No, we just empty them into our truck. Because some of the other composters just switch off the buckets. They just do a swap off. Yeah. And they return a cleaner bucket. Not clean, but cleaned out bucket to use. So that's why you require the compostable liner. So how do you know that it is compostable, the liner? Well, we take a ton of them in. They break down. I mean, it's pretty rugged testing on that. So how did you start this business? I was living in Seattle, maybe around 2008, 2010, and we had it back then. It was kind of a pilot thing going on in Seattle at that time. I'd always been composting. I grew up in Wisconsin and just did doing it in our backyard. I've always been somebody that dislikes waste, throwing anything out. It was always just kind of hurts a little bit. Mm-hmm. When I moved back from Seattle to the East Coast with my future wife, I wanted to start my own business because I didn't know what else to do. And it seems simple. You don't need a uh, PhD to start it. But uh, it was much more work than I would have ever expected. It's funny, like I saw the movie There Will Be Blood with Daniel Day-Lewis starting out digging the oil well, camping out and just being covered black head to toe. And that was kind of how it was like in the early, it was like living on nothing in hindsight, 10 years later, I'm glad I was like 29 at the time because I wouldn't want to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> what are the ideal conditions for your compost to be successful? This Because you had just experience on a household level to take it, to commercialize it, to understand it. Well, for us, it was lucky that Massachusetts, right place, right time. Nobody was doing it here yet. And the laws within a couple of years were a major tailwind to us. We started in Gloucester, found like six restaurants willing to do it, and kind of grew across the North Shore. And demand just kept growing and growing. And I mean, to be honest, the trash rates are really expensive. The population is very progressive, and they also have a little more money. So it does cost a little more money at smaller scales. Mm-hmm. You can start saving money when you're like at a supermarket level and you have over a ton a week of food waste, but it does cost a little more, even though the trash is so expensive out here. So there is a lot of things that worked well together to get 
Massachusetts going. I think that's going to keep continuing across the country over time because it's just unsustainable to do anything else. So what you're saying is Massachusetts enforced the law, but you're a private company which is carrying out the compost pickup. Massachusetts has laws like you can't put cardboard in the in the uh, trash. So it's a ban. You can't put this stuff in the trash. As, and food waste was added to that ban in 2014. But it's not super enforced. They do find people when they see large amounts. Why are city governments not doing it themselves? I mean, they do trash pickup. They do recycle pickup. They do, you know, your lawn waste pickup. Why are they not doing this? I think it's a large step right now for a lot of city governments. We do citywide in the town of Manchester, Massachusetts, and about 40% participate. Cambridge does it citywide, and it's about 40%. And that's generally what we've heard from citywide to expect 40%. So the population's not totally on board yet. So even though they're already paid with the taxes, it's not any incremental expense to participate. 60% of people aren't doing it. And I think, again, the large reason is people don't know how simple it is. You just put food in a different bin. Like, it's that easy. Just put food in a different bin and then put that bin on the curb. I was thinking of one thing when we used to have to put out our compost in our compost bin. I would collect it in a jar by the sink. And every couple of days, we would go to the backyard and put it. And if I would tell one of my girls to do it, both of them would be like, you, I'm not doing the composting chore today. I'm not opening the compost barrel to pour this out. So that may be sort of the feeling everybody has. I don't want to have rotting food sitting on my counter or my porch or my backyard or a week for you to come. Yeah, the second reason people don't do it is the smell. I actually don't think it smells so bad. I don't think it smells either. I mean, unless you keep your bin out on the porch where it's sunny and you don't clean it ever. And, you know, if you miss a pickup, so it's two weeks and it's 100 degrees. Yeah, it can stink. But there's a huge spectrum. You know, my mother-in-law keeps her stuff in the freezer until the day of. And so... There is absolutely zero smell, zero bugs. The bin is still brand new after a couple of years. And then there's some, you know, slobs that don't use bags and the food is nasty in the bin and there's flies. There's a whole spectrum of how far people can go, but it really doesn't have to smell. It's not that hard to not have it smell. So you said you don't put any bacteria ages because there's vermiculture. There are some other Japanese methods of creating compost. This is just completely nature doing its job. Yeah. How did you start it? You needed to have the first sourdough starter, shall we say. No, it comes like out of the air. I mean, it's like when you die, the bugs eat you from inside out. Like you have all the stuff inside already. How big is your operation? Because when I contacted you, I was under the impression that you're a grassroots, couple of trucks, few times a week kind of a guy. But when I started researching you, you have about 20 trucks now? 25 trucks, maybe, I don't know, five loaders, three compost sites, about 25,000 customers covering Rhode Island and all of eastern Massachusetts. Is your compost different than the compost that I would create in my backyard? Is yours more refined, more superior? Yeah, the stuff you make in your backyard, I mean, unless you really geek out on it, 
it's really hard to get your backyard to fully break down. You know, vermicompost is good stuff, but like we get called all the time to just take people's backyard piles away because they're they get a little frustrated. I've never had a good backyard pile. I mean, it's really more of a disposal thing because it takes forever to actually get the stuff out of it. But we also screen it. Most people, you know, nobody in the backyard screens their stuff, really. So when we screen it, we take out, you know, all rocks and sticks and bones and stuff like that. And then that can go back through for another round. And then you just have stuff that's under about half inch. That's really like kind of soft feeling and fully broken down. And it's a lot better. And you get, I mean, you just, you don't get much out of your backyard. For the average person, yeah, the backyard's a very convenient way to dispose environmentally of, you know, their vegetables and coffee grinds that they're not eating. But it's not really, you're not going to get that much gardening use out of it. In my experience, it took a lot longer to break down and, you know, almost a couple of seasons and then you use a little bit. And if you really want to do it fast in the backyard, you should like grind it up and give it to worms. I had two piles, one pile with grass clippings and just, you know, weeds and extra things that you pull out of the bed. And that pile was just in one corner of the yard. And the other one with food waste, I had put it in the barrel. That took a long time. The kids used to roll the barrel. That was another chore when they go out to play on the swing set. That, okay, now roll the barrel. We haven't rolled it <laughs> this week or whatever it is. And But the pile, which was in the corner with just the clippings and the, not the grass clippings, we would put like the weeds and some other things, plants and stuff that we had pulled out. That actually became pretty smooth because it was just open in the air. Maybe worms got in and... That became a pretty nice, uh, good-looking soil. But one in the barrel took a very, very long time to break down. So is there any difference in the nutrients, too? I think it really just comes down to the heat. If you're not thermophilically composting it, the backyard pile is probably like 80 degrees. And so you're really relying on bugs to chew it up. And that can take a while if it's not already ground to pieces. But if you ground it to pieces... You mixed it up and you gave it to worms, it would be gone within like a couple of weeks. It's all about how you do it. It's really like you want it, I would say like half inch particles, that is the moisture of a wrung out sponge. So the bacteria live on the wet surface, coating the compost, but also can breathe. It's not too wet. And so when they have the right conditions, you can break it down really fast. So for the nerds and the geeks, in the audience, just explain to us what are the scientific steps? What are the requirements? How does composting happen? I mean, I would say you take half food, half carbon material, which could be shredded paper or shredded leaves. Wood chips take forever. Mm -hmm. The paper and leaves, shredding it really makes it speed up. And if you mix them, I mean, you kind of need worms or something unless you have a big pile that's four by four by four feet, like bigger than a cubic yard. Anything smaller than that is just not going to have any kind of heat to break it down. So, I mean, there's lots of different methods. They say layer things, but layering is going to take forever. It's generally easier to just add stuff to the middle of the pile and just keep adding it to the middle. Yeah, it's having the right balance of carbon to nitrogen and then the right particle size and then the right amount of moisture. Approximately how many tons did you collect last year? Was there a difference between 2020 and 2019, especially with the pandemic? I think it was the same amount, but we picked up from way more residents. 
last year. Uh, the size, we doubled our residents from like 10,000 to 20,000. We lost about 80% of our commercial stops, you know, because we have all these restaurants, offices, colleges, but the amount of tonnage ended up being about the same. And so, I don't know, 200 tons by 52 weeks. You had to kind of change your routing because you were making these one-ton stops in universities, college dorms, or restaurants. And now to collect that one ton, you probably had to go to 100 households or more. We actually kind of got lucky with the pandemic's timing because we had a mountain of compost, finished compost. We had a huge amount. And we were like nervous, how are we going to sell all of this compost? And then the pandemic hit, we converted like three or four trucks that were picking up food waste into compost delivery trucks by chopping off the lifts. And we do a lot of our own welding and manufacturing work. So they started delivering all this compost. And we were lucky that it was a huge year for compost demand. Everybody was home growing you know, having their gardens and growing food and all of that. So we had a 400% increase in compost sales last year. So those four trucks weren't even enough. We had to get some rental trucks too. Mm -hmm. That took up all the slack we had lost from the commercials. And that lasts a few months. It's a seasonal thing. By the time that ended, we had all these residents still signing up. So we started moving everything back into residence. So it went pretty smooth mm -hmm. going from compost pickups converted to compost deliveries back into compost pickups. How do you optimize the routes? Because that is also a challenge, right? Yeah, we have our own software that we help develop and we mix in the commercials with the residents. So if we're in the neighborhood, if we're doing pickups in Waltham and right next door is Brandeis University, we work that in. It's better than driving all over for just commercials. You also provide waste audits. What are they? Well, we just started that. It's new. It's something that schools tend to be a little more interested in, where they want to see what's the composition of their waste, trash, recycling, compost. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, over the course of a week, you break out every aspect of it. You just get like the ratios of how much of what stream and where is it coming from and stuff like that. Well, like a lot of people don't know how much food waste they have. So when you do that, you can be like, no, you do have a lot and you should be composting. <laughs> if you had the year of municipalities or cities, if you had to send a message to the mayors of Indiana, of Ohio, or some other states where it's not as enforced or there aren't any laws like Massachusetts, what would you tell them to convince them? Or would you, do you have an economic proposal? them yeah in the midwest it might be trickier because the trash rates are lower so economically it might be a tough sell to send another truck around to pick up the waste because recycling was optional till about whatever 20 years ago or something like that right and um, once it became viable that you could make money recycling than just dumping it. So it's all economics in the end. It's tricky. At some point, it's going to be more economical the less space there is. I mean, there's nimbyism everywhere where people don't want more landfills, and that's going to drive up trash costs over time. Mm -hmm. But meanwhile, the environmental part just really isn't priced in very well. It's just one of my 
I believe in capitalism, but capitalism doesn't solve a lot of the environmental challenges because of the the tragedy of the commons kind of thinking. But um, there's some good movies on this recently, but like all of the life above the ground comes from the soil, like the trees, you know, the birds that live in the trees, our food, everything comes from the soil. And if you don't have healthy soil, you have deserts. And so, you know, the amount of ability for the soil to store carbon, to grow more plants, and then that holds better uh, moisture, and then so you have better temperature regulation, less carbon in the air, more food production. The more life in the soil, the more life above the soil. And that's just not really factored into anything economically, you know. And so we're kind of just heading towards becoming a planet like Mars with desertification everywhere because we're not taking care of the soil. The soil has 50% of the nutrients it used to have. So our food has half the nutrients it used to have. So we're getting more sick. It's a vicious cycle. It's hard to add in the economics of it. That's sort of the frustrating part for most environmentalists, how to make it economically viable. And if you penalize everything, then there are the shortfalls for that, right? You know, your anti-capitalism, your anti-growth, if you have a penalty. So what are the movies that you were talking about? I recommend watching Kiss the Ground for a good summary on how important soil plays a role in the health of the whole planet. I think it's one of the most underestimated things in all of the climate change stuff you read about is how important the soil is. It's the base layer for positive feedback loops that incorporate everything else. Yeah, it is really important that we respect our soil. You know, today, September 2nd, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Delaware are deluged with floods. The rivers have never been this high in the last 150 years. And some of the reason are overconstruction in floodplains, concretization. There's nowhere for the water to go. Now more than ever, we have to respect and take care of our grounds, our soil. We know that it's really hard for cities and municipalities to do it. The economics doesn't work. How about you taking it nationwide or at least along the East Coast? I would say it's a tough one to franchise because there's so much nuance, you know, like finding sites, compost sites is extremely hard in New England. That's one area where the Midwest has a huge advantage. There's so much more land. And here, where the pickups make the most sense are in the cities. And it's also where you can't make compost sites. So there's always going to be like a commute from where you can make money doing the compost pickups versus where you have to take it to do the composting. Mm -hmm. And it's generally like an hour before you get out into rural places where there's enough elbow room, not be surrounded by neighbors because composting does smell when you turn it. So you have to have a little buffer zone. So there's a lot of nuance. It doesn't just scale like a McDonald's franchise where you can just set a pattern and have it replicated by people all over the place. It's a very tricky role for anybody to just come in and buy the rights to it and start something. It's really like two businesses. There's the compost collection and then the composting. And the collection is would be easier to franchise, mm -hmm. but it's also tricky because with collection, like we invented our own trucks because they don't really exist out there. You know, almost all the compost companies are either very small and they use vans and five-gallon buckets and they replace the buckets 
or they're very big. They're trash companies with rear loaders, and they only go to the places with one ton or something like that. And we're kind of this medium company that straddles both sides, and we had to invent our trucks that could handle that. So it's tricky. I, I wanted to just copy when 800 got junk, but uh, we uh, couldn't quite get there. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Connor, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you. Anytime. You're listening to Vidya Ayer on Mindful Businesses. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand to be featured on our show, send an email to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. The theme music was composed by Tatum Gale. This is Vadia Ayer with Mindful Businesses.